Well, good morning. A couple of years ago, the Harvard Business Review did a study that they titled Trickle-Down Leadership. And the goal of this study was to try to measure kind of the impact of a leader towards helping those underneath them flourish. And it also wanted to look at what kind of impact does it have for future leaders to serve under a good leader versus serving under a poor leader. And what's interesting about this study was when you look at it and compare it to recent surveys and studies done, juxtaposing like the confidence or lack of confidence people have right now in some of the major institutions that have defined the American experience. Whether it's the Congress, uh, the church, the presidency, the news media, law enforcement, academia, the business sector. There is a, a, a massive amount, survey after survey just shows a massive amount of disconnect and of distrust between people and these major institutions that Americans have looked to for guidance throughout our history. And while there are probably a number of reasons to this breakdown in confidence, I think it's almost inarguable that one of the main ones is poor leadership. Is poor leadership leadership. And the reality is I don't need Harvard to tell me that leadership matters. Proverbs chapter 29 verse 2 says, when the righteous thrive, the people rejoice. When the wicked rule, the people groan. They groan. See, leadership matters. It matters. And whether or not you've picked up on this as we've gone through our study, but Jesus often emphasizes the importance of leadership. And he saves his strongest rebukes in his earthly ministry towards the religious leadership of that day. And so when he looks at the, the spiritual and the moral decay of the people, he places a great deal of responsibility right there at the feet of the leadership. At the feet of of the leaders. And unfortunately, this was not something new in the history of Israel. They, they knew all about poor leadership. I mean, you, you have the great King David, who reigns during what's called the, the, the kingdom period, right? The United Kingdom. You have Saul and then David. And David's this mighty man, this great king. And then after David, the, the throne goes to his son, Solomon, who even expands the boundaries of the kingdom. But then he starts to waver. And when Solomon dies, that's the end of the United Kingdom, and, and Israel is divided. And we have the period called the divided kingdom. And, and in this point in time, the, the kingdom divides, and you have Israel in the north, and you have Judah in the south, and both of them have their own kings. And it's going to be this way for roughly 350 years. And in those 350 years, there are 39 kings between the two. 39 kings. Of which the scriptures speak in a positive manner of eight of them. And four of those, they basically just say, they were not a total train wreck. Okay? Judah has 20 kings, and of those 28 
are perceived as somewhat positive, which means if we do our math, Israel had 19 kings of which zero were spoken of positively by God. Israel goes 0 for 19. And thus, in 722, just a couple hundred years after Solomon, the Assyrians come from the north and they take out Israel. They take them out. And Judah in the south is is not long far behind. And in 586, the Babylonians finally come in and they put an end to Judah. And all of a sudden, this great nation of Israel is reduced to rubble. The chosen people of God are exiled or being ruled over by pagans. And you have the Babylonians, and they get wiped out, and the Persians come, and now they're under Persian authority. And here comes Alexander the Great, and he gets rid of the Persians, and now we're under Greeks. But now the Romans come, and they get rid of the Greeks. And that's where we find ourselves when Jesus is living. Is Israel is under the rule of the Romans. And so while that's not in our text, that's part of the backdrop that's going on here in Luke 17 that's worth understanding. Because what we're going to see is essentially Jesus is going to turn to his disciples. He's been rebuking the Pharisees in chapter 16. Rebuke, rebuke, rebuke. You're terrible. I don't like you. Go away. Now he's going to turn to his disciples. And what he's going to do is he's going to turn to his disciples and he's going to say, you know all about bad leadership. You know what that looks like. You don't be like that. Don't let that be you. You be different. And that's really the point of the passage this morning. And and let me say one thing before we, we really jump in. And Roger hit upon this last week. If you are a follower of Christ, you are a leader. If you are a disciple of the Son of God, you are a Christian leader. I think of the Apostle Peter and how he describes it in, in 1 Peter 2 as he, as he takes some truths in the Old Testament and, and he says, this is who you are. He says, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you might proclaim the excellencies of the one who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So you were created and redeemed by God to be a leader a Christian leader, to lead others out of darkness into his marvelous light. And the question is not, am I going to be a leader? You are. You are. The question is, what type of leader are you and what type of leader do you aspire to be with the days that God has given you on this earth? And so this brings us into verse 1. It says, and he said to his disciples, so he's turning to his disciples, It is inevitable that stumbling blocks come, but woe to him through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea than that he would cause one of these little ones to stumble. Now, if you thought I was just kind of kidding about Jesus and the emphasis he places on leadership, these two verses here might kind of help you understand Jesus turns to his guys and he says, look, I know life is tough. I know that stumbling may come. I know this thing is hard. But if your leadership causes others to stumble, 
I would rather you just put a big stone around your neck and go deep sea fishing. Like just jump in the ocean. It would be better off if you did that. I mean, whoa. Easy, Jesus, right? Easy. Jesus means business, right? And, and, and Jesus is not afraid to use hyperbole. He is not afraid, to, he's not afraid to exaggerate, to get his point across. He's not advocating suicide. But he is advocating the importance of good leadership and the tragedy that comes with poor leadership. Now notice something he says. He says that some stumbling, stumbling is inevitable. Now we all stumble, don't we? Whether you have walked with the Lord for 50 years or for 50 minutes, there is a stumbling in the Christian life. 1 John tells us this in 1 John 1.8, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Like I am reminded every day of my brokenness. Every day, my brokenness is ever before me. And yet the fact that I know that I am prone to sin is never an excuse for my sin. Ever. Ever. In other words, when it comes to sin, inevitability does not equate to acceptability. The inevitability to sin does not equate into an acceptability of sin. The fact that we are prone to sin should never be used as an excuse for sin. If I am prone to lust, that does not excuse lust. It doesn't. If I am prone to bouts of anger, like if I'm just wired with a temper, it does not excuse your anger. If you wrestle with materialism, we just wrestle with materialism. That does not excuse a materialistic lifestyle. And this is a fundamental disagreement that the scriptures have with how modern culture looks at the self. Because modern culture looks at the individual and it says, if the individual does not pursue all of their desires, then they are not being true to their authentic self. Like if I don't pursue my desires, then I'm actually being inauthentic to who God's created me to be. But that is faulty logic because that doesn't take into account you're broken. And so are your desires. And God is remaking you and he's reshaping you and he's redeeming you. But your desires can be faulty. And so it's not, pursuing all my desires, it's not the expression of my true self. But as Kierkegaard said, with God's help, I shall become myself. With God's help, I shall become myself. So the fact is that it's never an excuse. And sin's a big deal to God. So much so that he left heaven and came to earth, taking on flesh, dying on the cross to pay the penalty of sin. Because it's such a big deal. And the inevitability of sin does not equate to an acceptability of sin. Because it can lead others astray. And this is one of the things we see in verse 2. 
In verse 2, Jesus speaks of little children. Now, now who are these little children? Most likely they are believers. I mean, they are believers. But then most likely they are believers who are young in their faith. Not necessarily young in age, but they're just young in their faith. They're immature. And when it says to stumble, it's the Greek word skandaliso, which is the word that's most often used to describe apostasy. So the falling away from the faith. So understand what Jesus is saying here. Poor leadership can lead to people departing from the faith. It can lead to a falling away. And one of the things that saddens me the most is when I hear stories of people who left the church because of abuse that they received from within the church. I mean, that, that, is, that is tragic. And, and we hear about it on the news. You know, people who are supposed to be praying for the vulnerable instead are praying upon the vulnerable. Sexually, spiritually, physically, emotionally, monetarily, abusing those that God has charged them to shepherd and to lead. And it's tragic. And this abuse leads to people stumbling. It leads to people departing from the faith, not because there's something wrong with Jesus, but because of something that was done to them by Christians. And so if you are someone who has experienced that type of abuse, we, we, I don't, we are sorry. I mean, I am so sorry. And the fact that you are here is something that I am so thankful for. Because it's not worth punting on Jesus. He is the Lord, the Redeemer of life. And He is not worth forsaking. And so tragedy comes. And it comes not only when we stumble in what we do as leaders, but also comes to when we stumble in what we say and teach as leaders. Like when we depart from God's Word. When we depart from the Scriptures. I've been doing some quite a bit of reading recently in what's called sub-Christian cults or non-Trinitarian cults such as Mormonism and Jehovah's Witnesses. And one of the things you you study that's that's somewhat fascinating about these two religions in particular is they both were birthed out of America in the 19th century. And yet they've come to have a massive global presence. As a matter of fact, the Mormon church in 2018 claims 16 million members over which over half of them reside outside of the United States. Over half. And you, you hear that and you go, how is that possible? And how is that possible? Well, as studies show, many converts to Mormonism come from lukewarm, undiscipled, unrooted Christians. They, they have not been discipled in their faith. Their roots of faith have not sunk deep. They're unfamiliar with Christian truth. They're unfamiliar with Christian doctrine. And so when someone comes along and comes into their neck of the woods, and they say, hey, have you heard about Jesus? They go, oh, yeah, totally, totally. Well, have you heard this? No. No. Oh, then you've only heard half the story. Let me tell you the rest. And they prey upon these people. And many people stumble and fall away from the faith because of this false teaching that they are hearing. And it's tragic. It's tragic. And this is one of the reasons we, as a church at Wayside, have a strong conviction 
to raise up Christian leaders rooted in truth globally. And so a huge aspect of our missions and outreach ministry at Wayside is to raise up leaders, to raise up Christian leaders. And we are very invested in a number of theological institutions and training places around the world. We're invested in Central America with Prometa. We're invested in uh, the Middle East with Jordan Evangelical Theological Seminary. We're invested in Israel with One for Israel. We're invested in Uganda with Africa Newell University. We're invested in Rwanda with the Africa College of Theology. Because we believe it is vitally important for the church to sink deep roots so that when those leaders go out, they are teaching truth that is not a scandal, that will not cause the sheep that they are shepherding to stumble and to fall away because of false teaching. See, how we live matters. What we teach matters. Leadership matters. And this is why in verse 3, Jesus follows it up and he says, So be on your guard. In other words, get your spiritual antennas up. Go constantly be doing spiritual checkups. Make sure you're getting spiritual x-rays that might identify something that is broken in your life. Live in community. Live in transparency. Live in authenticity, knowing how easy it is to stumble into sin and knowing how devastating sin can be. It can wreck your life. It can wreck your family. It can wreck your church. So we must be on guard. So divine leadership starts with doing what is right, teaching what is true, and now we see that it also involves correcting those who are not. It involves correcting. Look at verse 3. It says, if your brother sins, rebuke him. Now, because correction is often done poorly, far too many think that all correction is unnecessary or that it's not worth it. Because it's often done poorly, they see all correction as harsh. But that is not true. This may shock you. We are mandated by God to correct one another. It's not a request, it's not an idea. It is a command from God that we work together to correct one another. Galatians 6 says, Brethren, if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore one in a spirit of gentleness. Implicit in that is that you are going to that person saying, Hey, we got a problem here. We got a problem. Matthew 18, a classic passage on this. Jesus speaking. If your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault. Just between the two of you. And if they listen to you, you have won them over. And then he goes on and says, if they don't listen, take two or three. If they still don't listen, bring them to the church. If they still don't listen, you treat them as tax collectors. This is straight from Jesus. It's a mandate to correct. It's essential to Christian growth. Because the goal of correction at the end of the day, people, is restoration. The goal is the flourishing of the one being corrected. 
Y'all know that I spent seven years coaching football, and one of my main jobs was correcting errors. I rebuked football sin (laughs) all the time, all the time. We were slaying it. Why? Why? Because I wanted to see my players flourish. I wanted to see the team flourish. So when a mistake was made, we did not ignore it. If a guy I'm coaching busts the coverage and they score a touchdown, I don't go to him and say, doesn't matter. Kumbaya. That's not the way it works. I would go to him and I would lovingly and gently remind him of the importance of applying what he's been taught. Right? See, they needed to be coached. Nadine needed to be told, this is what you did wrong. This is how we need to correct it. And you can go do it. And I had, I had a great moment this week. I was, I was flying back from Dallas on Wednesday. I'm just beat. It's been a long day. And I walk into the terminal there in San Antonio, at the San Antonio airport. I look up, and there's a couple waiting to get on the flight. And it's a guy I coached at O'Connor 10 years ago. And his wife, who I taught in freshman geography 10 years ago. And this is a guy not just that I coached on the O'Connor team. He was, he was, in, my, he was in the secondary. So he's in my small group when I was coaching. And so I go up there, and we start reminiscing and, and talking about old times. And, and we both talk about this play that he made against Marshall High School. They ran a seven-yard out. Tyler jumped the route. He picked it off and took it 70 yards for a touchdown right down the sidelines. And I remember that play vividly, but here's what else I remember. That play came as a result of a mistake he had made the week before when he had messed up on the very same play. And so Marshall sees it on film, and they run the play, and he jumps the route, and we score a touchdown. And what was special is here we were 10 years later in the San Antonio airport, and this play that we spoke of, he's just beaming. And I know that every time he thinks about high school and his high school football career, he's going to remember that play. And that play was a response to a previous failure where there was a correction, a response by him, and a completely different outcome the next time. We rebuke to restore. We correct in hopes of flourishing. That's the goal of godly correction. That's the goal. And so when it's done correctly, it's not ridicule, it's restoration, it's growth. So rebuking sin is not judgmental, it's loving leadership. It's godly leadership. And we need to know that. So then the question comes, okay, well what happens if the person who's being rebuked or corrected repents and responds. What do we do then? And Jesus is very clear. He says, I'll tell you what you do. You forgive. Well, how many times, Jesus? Well, seven times a day. In other words, you keep on forgiving. It says, if your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times a day and returns to you seven times saying, I repent, forgive him. You see, forgiveness is at the heart of the Christian gospel. Forgiveness is at the heart 
of the Christian life. Forgiveness is central to divine leadership. And for the Christian, forgiveness is not the exception. It is the rule. It is not the exception. It is the rule. Now, what do I mean by forgiveness? Because we we need to define this for a second. Forgiveness is not a feeling. Like, how often do you feel like forgiving? About as often as you feel like rolling out of bed and running a marathon, right? I'm just waiting for that. I'm just waiting to feel like I got 26.2 in me, right? It's not going to happen. No, forgiveness is an is a, is a act of the will. It is a choice. It is saying, I am not going to take into account what somebody has done to me. I'm not going to hold on to it. And it's not a sign of weakness. And it's not something you only grant when somebody deserves it. I mean, what is that? How meaningful is forgiveness if you're like, I'm going to forgive them when they earn it back? That's not forgiveness, right? Forgiveness is that active choice of the will that's full of grace and mercy and love. When you, when you say, your account is clear with me. Your account's clear. And yet, with that being said, let's just be honest with one another. I mean, let's just call a spade a spade. That is extremely difficult. I mean, forgiveness is extremely difficult. I would say for the majority of us, true forgiveness may be the height of our spiritual life. That's how big of a deal it is. And I don't say that flippantly. Because I know people in here personally who have experienced horrific things. And for them, they're not saying, hey, forgiveness is hard. They're saying, forgiveness seems impossible from where I'm standing. It just seems impossible. Well, I'll tell you, three weeks from today, I'm going to be at a place where forgiveness seems pretty impossible as well. Because three weeks from today, I'm going to be preaching at New Life Bible Church in Kigali, Rwanda. We're taking a, a team to Rwanda from Wayside. Some are going to be working in a town called Kijeo doing medical outreach. And I and Pastor Will over at Stone Oak, we're going to be teaching at the Bible College in Kigali. And when I'm there, as I stand up there to preach at the church, or as I look out into the, the classroom at the College of Theology, I will be reminded of the power of forgiveness. Because this is a country that was just 25 years ago completely ravaged by one of the worst genocides in the history of mankind. Just 25 years ago. One million Rwandans. One million Rwandans slaughtered in three months. And they didn't even have guns. This is epic in terms of its evil This is epic in terms of its pain. They only had seven and a half million people in the whole country at the time. And a million are wiped out in three months. And there's going to be people in that congregation or in that classroom, I guarantee you, who lost family members in the genocide. Maybe even lost members because they were killed by family members of somebody they were sitting next to. In the same church, in the same classroom. 
But they are going to open up the word together and worship God. They are going to stand and sing praise together to worship God. Not because forgiveness is easy. Not because forgiveness is deserved. But because in response to the forgiveness that Christ has offered us. As C.S. Lewis writes, to be a Christian means to forgive the inexcusable because God has forgiven the inexcusable in you. And so divine leadership from God's perspective involves forgiveness. It involves forgiveness. Now, please hear me. Forgiveness does not mean there are no consequences. Like if you go home after church today and you decide, you know, I'm going to light my neighbor's house on fire. Hey, Good luck, right? They may forgive you. God can forgive you. The police will not. The justice system will not forget you, forgive you. There are consequences for things. If you cheat on your spouse, you may be forgiven by God. Your spouse may forgive you, but you're going to work through some consequences, aren't you? I mean, that's the whole point of verses 1 and 2. Offering forgiveness does not mean that there's no such thing as consequences. It just means that you are applying to them in some measure the grace and mercy and forgiveness that God has applied to you. And if you're sitting here this morning and you're saying, that just seems impossible, then you are responding the same way the disciples did. Let's look at verse 5. It says, The apostles said to the Lord, Increase our faith. Let me translate that for you. That's impossible. I need more faith, Jesus, to do that what you are asking me to do. And yet, how does the Lord respond to their, to their question? Look at verse 6. And the Lord said, If you had faith like a mustard seed, you would say to this mulberry tree, Be uprooted and be planted in the sea, and it would obey you. So Jesus tells his guys, You know, a little bit of faith goes a long way. It goes a long way. And he uses the image of this little mustard seed uprooting this massive sycamore tree. And once again, like I said, Jesus likes to use hyperbole. The application from today's message is not to sit in your backyard and pick out the biggest tree and try to place it in the Medina Lake. It's not his point. But his point is, is that you have everything you need right now. I don't need to increase your faith. You need to exercise the mustard seed faith you already have. Because it can produce sycamore-sized miracles if you allow it. Sycamore-sized miracles like authentic, true forgiveness. I want to challenge you this morning. If there is someone that you need to forgive, not because they deserve it, not because it doesn't hurt, like all get out, but because you have been forgiven by Christ. Is there someone you need to forgive? I pray that you would just ask the Lord to give you that faith, to help you exercise that mustard seed-sized faith that you might receive a sycamore-sized miracle And forgive the one who has offended you. Not because it's the Christian thing to do, but because it's what Christ did for you. And now this brings us to verses 7 through 10. 
which is an interesting parable that closes this section. Jesus says, Which of you, having a slave plowing or tending sheep, will say to him when he has come in from the field, Come immediately and sit down to eat? But will he not say to him, Prepare something for me to eat, and properly clothe yourself and serve me while I eat and drink? And afterward you may eat and drink. He does not thank the slave because he did the things which were commanded, does he? So you too, when you do all the things which are commanded, you say, we are unworthy slaves. We have done only that which we ought to have done. Now, the NASB is a great translation, but it's a little clunky here, right? So, so this is what's going on. Think about the flow of the previous verses. Jesus says, forgive. The disciples say, give me more faith. Jesus says, you have everything you need. You have everything you need. And then here he says, and as a matter of fact, what I am asking you to do is not super special. It's not for like superhero followers. What I am asking you to do is the same thing I expect every follower of mine to do. It's your duty. And Jesus illustrates this point by painting a picture about a slave finishing his daytime chores. And the question Jesus poses is this. When the slave completes his work outside and arrives back at the house, who is going to serve who? Is it the master's job to serve the slave because he's finished his chores? Or is it the slave's job to serve the master because his job is to work for the master. And that's the, that's the question Jesus is posing here. And obviously it is the job of the slave to serve the master. He is not to be rewarded because of his work. Because his job is to serve and work for the master. And understand this may not be our favorite illustration of Jesus. right? We like friendly Jesus. I mean, this is, this is Jesus saying, you are a servant. But I'm reminded of the words of the Apostle Paul who repeatedly calls himself a doulos. I'm a bondservant. I am a slave of Christ. This is what Jesus is describing. He's saying, what I'm asking you to do is what you are expected to do. Not of some super spiritual believer, but of all who choose to follow me. And what it reminds us is something so important, is that God is not indebted to any one of us. God does not owe us anything. The fact that I preach behind a pulpit on Sunday does not mean that therefore my stock should do better. It does not mean that all my kids are going to love the Lord. It does not mean that I'm not going to get T-boned on 410 driving home. He doesn't owe me anything because I work for him. It's our job as servants of the king to serve him. It's kind of like when my kids brush their teeth at night. And they say, hey, Dad, I'm done. I brushed my teeth. I don't go, well, stop the presses. This is incredible. We're going to Fiesta, Texas tomorrow after we pick up your new iPad. That's not how it works. I say, okay, get in bed. You're supposed to brush your teeth. It's not that big of a deal. That's what you do. 
And here's the point. Though you are a child of God, you are also a servant of the king. And don't let your privilege as his child blind you to your duty as his servant. It's a both and. It's a both and. And divine leadership requires humble service. I thought about this recently when I watched the, the funeral of Senator McCain. A few years back, uh, I, got off, I, got, I, I got offered to go be the, a retreat speaker up at the Naval Academy for the crew midshipmen, midshipmen involved with Campus Crusade. And, and so I went up there, and as I was at the Naval Academy, I walked into one of the buildings, and they had like this, this row of pictures of famous Navy graduates. And one of them was Senator John McCain. And uh, I'm not interested in, 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 in talking about his political positions, but I am interested in talking about his time as a POW. Because if you don't know the story of, of Senator McCain, in 1967, his plane was shot down over Hanoi, North Vietnam. He shattered both arms and a leg and was captured. And he spent five and a half years as a prisoner of war there, where he was repeatedly beaten to a pulp where he spent over half of his time in solitary confinement. And what is remarkable is less than a year into his imprisonment, his dad, his dad became the top admiral in the Navy overseeing that area of the war. And the North Vietnamese thought, this is fantastic. I mean, we've got royalty in our prisons. And so they gave him an extra special treatment, hoping to break him, And then they were going to release him early and use it as this great propaganda, like the son of an admiral is begging to go home. And they were going to release him. And McCain said no. He refused to leave. And they beat him harder, and he refused to leave. Because according to the POW Code of Conduct, troops were to be released in the order in which they were captured. And McCain later in life was quoted as saying, I knew that every prisoner the Vietnamese tried to break, those who had arrived before me and those who would go home after me, would be taunted with the story of how an admiral's son had gone home early. In other words, it was my duty to stay. His privilege as the son of an admiral did not remove his duty as a servant of the United States military. And our privilege as a son and daughter of the king, of the living God, does not remove our duty to serve him with all that we are and with everything that we have. But here's the beauty, and I want to close with this. The fact that God does not owe us anything only furthers the unimaginable beauty that he has given us everything. The fact that he owes me nothing, but that he's given me everything, just further emphasize the grace of my God. See, he doesn't give me things because I deserve it. He gives me things because he's a God who gives. That's who he is. Acts 17 says God needs nothing from human hands. So all of creation is by his grace, by his free choice. Redemption is by his grace, by his free choice. He doesn't need us to sing and worship him, but he delights in it. He doesn't need me preaching for him, but he allows it. He doesn't need your money, but he enjoys partnering in ministry and using it. Because that is who our God is. The God who invites us in. 
He invites us in by his grace to experience the fullness of life in him. And so, friends, we do not need to look to God for some reward. We need to recognize that life with God is the reward. It is the reward. It's that he has given us of himself, and in him is the fullness of life. So I don't need a little trinket. I've got God. I've got God. So as those who have received this divine grace, may we live with integrity. May we teach truth. May we correct and rebuke with grace. May we forgive freely and may we humbly serve the very God who took on flesh, washed the feet of his disciples, and hung on a cross for me and for you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are moved by your grace. We are moved by your love. We confess that we stumble. And we confess that by your grace, you wipe our account clean. But Lord, we don't want to lead anyone astray. So would you help us? Would you help us live with integrity? Would you help us teach truth? Rebuke when necessary. Forgive always. And humbly serve. Recognizing that our duty to serve is also our delight. Because in it, we experience the fullness of life through the author of life. God, I pray if there's anybody in here who doesn't know you as Lord, anyone in here who thinks, well, so you tell me if I do all these things, I can get right with God, right? Like if I don't cause anybody to fall and if I freely forgive and all that good stuff, I can get right with God. And your answer is no, no. That by sin, through our sin, we have all fallen short of the glory of God. And that the wages of our sin is death, is separation But in your great love and mercy, you, O Lord Jesus, left heaven and came to earth, taking on flesh, living a perfect life in my place, dying on the cross, the death that I deserved, but being raised from the grave on that third day in accordance with the scriptures. You conquered death, you conquered sin, and in you, you invite us to life. And you say, anyone who will place their trust in me for the forgiveness of their sin, We'll have their sin removed as far as the east is from the west. We'll experience the fullness of life now and eternal life to come. Lord, I pray if anybody in here has not taken that step, you would quicken the spirit in their heart. They would turn in repentance to you, knowing that you, O Lord, are the author and perfecter of their faith. Lord, help us lead well. Help us honor you. Help us be the men and the women you have called us to be. For with God's help, we shall become who we were truly created to be. And we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.